Hello, and welcome to Funnelocity, the podcast that brings you a down-to-earth perspective on what it takes to succeed in global demand generation from top to bottom of the sales and marketing funnel. I'm Enrico Brosio, president of Market One, and your host. In today's episode, we address perhaps the biggest challenge faced by businesses in many years, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, and specifically the effect it's had on B2B sales and marketing. Over the past few months, Market One, in partnership with B2B data marketing experts TechTarget, have conducted a survey of senior sales and marketing leaders across a variety of industries to understand how they've been affected by the crisis and how their companies are adapting to deal with it. We've just published the report entitled Virtual Progress, How 2020 is Bringing B2B Marketing and Sales Closer Together. And I'll give you a link to the download at the end of this podcast. But for now, let me introduce two guests joining me to discuss some of the key findings. We have John Steiner, CMO of TechTarget, where he helps tech companies of all sizes improve marketing and sales results using real purchase intent data. John's interest in behavioral data began back in college, where he majored in anthropology and first began setting what people do and why they say they do it. Ever since, he's been applying that kind of thinking to achieving the revenue goals for tech companies around the world. John, welcome to Funnelocity. Good to be here. We also have Fred Ewald, CEO of Market One, joining us. Fred founded the agency in 1998 with the vision of providing actionable sales intelligence to sales and marketing teams at global tech companies. Essentially account-based marketing well before the term was coined. Over the next 20 years, Fred evolved the agency to include digital, data, and MarTech services all with the vision of helping sales and marketing teams build a high-performance sales funnel. Fred, welcome to Funnelocity. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So before we get into the findings themselves, Fred, could I ask you to tell us a bit about Market One and more specifically about the approach we took with this survey? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Enrico. Um, Market One, we've, we've been around for over 20 years. And uh, a, a primary uh, service line has to do with primary data collection. So what does that really mean? It means business to business, open-ended conversations, typically with marketing executives, but also with our line of business. So our, and we do that worldwide. So our DNA is reaching out and holding business conversations. Uh, that, that's who Market One is in terms of um, our activities. Um, we, we, we became quite interested in running this sort of survey because during the pandemic, we kept hearing about what is happening and what's the result of the shutdown and virtual, um, virtual work, vir virtual events and so forth. But we heard very little about, well, what do people feel about the future? How is the, the pandemic and the whole nature of working virtually going to affect future priorities, specifically in the area of marketing? And so we became more and more curious about what our target audience thinks and feels about the long-term future. And uh, so that's really the impetus of this research. And I think the, um, the, the, the title of this particular podcast, it really belies the fact that we went into the survey without any preconceived theme or topic. Um, a lot of the questions were open-ended or, you know, and then with a bit of drill down in terms of uh, what is a marketer's outlook and how they feel about the future? What are they hearing from their, their, their company and their customers and drawing some conclusions based on that? Excellent. Thanks. Thanks, Fred. And John, from your point of view, why were you and TechTarget interested in partnering with us to do this survey? 
Well, so as you know, Enrico, a um, couple things. Tech Target is really big in the B2B tech uh, data space. So we've been doing purchase intent data at the opt-in prospect level now for more than five years. And so as a CMO, because I'm a marketing guy, I, I get exposed to a lot of data, lots and lots of quantitative data that can tell me about big groups and big segments. But what I don't get enough of, and I never get enough of, uh, is interaction with enough customers or enough prospects on a deep level. So I can see what they're doing in this behavioral data, but I can't really um, investigate why they're doing it. And so I'm always looking for opportunities to interact with more customers and prospects. And Market One, a company that, that I've done business with over the years, um, reached out and said, we're gonna to talk to these people in depth. Would you like to be a part of that? And I obviously jumped at it because I had experience with the types of callers, the types of people you put on the phone and how you do this stuff. And I knew that you would go deeper than a standard, say, survey monkey survey would go. And so it looked like a real opportunity to talk to more people at greater depth and understand the story behind what we're seeing in the data about their behaviors. And, and deep we did go. So thanks for that uh, uh, very kind intro, John. And obviously taking more of, an, of a qualitative approach, uh, a, lot of, a lot of amazing intelligence was, say, was shared with us uh, during these surveys. Uh, so Fred, perhaps I can ask you to start just giving us a sense of what were some of the more surprising things you learned uh, from this bit of research we did. Sure. The, the, the first thing that struck me about uh, as the results started coming in and they were borne out as the survey concluded, um, and, and I'm referring specifically to the question around what are your company's uh, future priorities uh, as they are responding to the pandemic and the virtual uh, work environment. And I was, I was struck by the fact that the majority of respondents really didn't have an, any, any clear idea about how the dust is going to settle. Um, but at the same time, under 10% said that everything's going to go back to normal. Everything's going to go back to pre-pandemic uh, work norms. So on one hand, you had um, very few respondents saying things are going to stay the same. And on the other hand, you had the majority of them saying that they don't know what the pandemic is going to bring nine months from now, a year from now. So you have these two very conflicting ideas, which really speaks to the uncertainty out there. Now, that said, as we went into the survey, there's some very, very clear observations that came out of it. And I'll, I'll probably defer to John to start that, that discussion. But to me, it was really the fact that there is a, you know, widespread unclarity around what's going to happen in the future with the marketing priorities. John, how about you? I'll contrast that a little bit. Um, one thing that jumped out at me that I think is super important is that there were there was a handful of companies that said that prior to the pandemic, they had already been embarked on digital transformation and that that actually they felt that helped them um, because they were already thinking about some of the challenges that the pandemic sort of increased. Uh, 
And what they needed to do was now accelerate what they had already begun. I think that's super important because one of the things we learn as we grow up in management is that if we can, if we can look forward to the way we want to be able to do things in the future and actually act on making the future, the faster we do that, the sooner we do that. In fact, the more prepared we are for things that we didn't expect. So I saw a really strong group of companies talking about simply accelerating their existing digital transformation. And I hadn't made that connection that those companies that were forward looking would realize benefit or would adjust more quickly than other companies. The second thing that was surprising to me is that most of the companies that we surveyed said that while obvious cuts in their budgets happened, the budget didn't necessarily go away. You know, they're cutting physical events, but the budget was shifted. So there hasn't been a huge cut in a lot of marketing budgets in B2B. There's been a shift in the application of that budget to other higher priorities or priorities that have been raised because of the pandemic. Um, another big surprise, and we're going to talk more about this, I suspect, is that it seems that sales is now embracing marketing more naturally or more vehemently than ever before. Um, so that was a big surprise that marketing would be viewed internally to companies as an area to go to get help in adjusting to the pandemic. And the fourth thing I'd say um, that I find really encouraging is a focus on the need to track sales activity. So managers are starting to realize that they need to really know what everybody is doing. And I would have thought that that preceded the pandemic, but it's wonderful in a way that something like the pandemic makes the need for data generated around what everybody is doing um, more obvious. Wow, quite a bit there. Lots of observations. Thanks, thanks, John. Let's let's start. Let's start to unpack those. Um, when we're thinking about, I guess, topics like digital tra digital transformation, uh, obviously a lot goes into that. It's people. It's process. It's technology. It's data. Um, let's maybe first talk about this this dynamic between sales and marketing. Uh, which has been there, I mean, it's been there for years, right? Sales and marketing alignment has been a topic of discussion uh, in B2B for, for many years. But, but I feel like there's something different happening now. Um, Fred, could I perhaps ask you to just give, give us your thoughts on that? Of course. So I, I think you touched upon it, Enrico. The, the relationship between sales and marketing uh, for years and years has been probably described more as one of of, 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 of a siloed uh, two departments which have different um, different goals, uh, yet they are they are supposed to be um, on the same team. And as probably everybody watching this um, this podcast knows, you know it, it it's almost a, a banality to talk about uh, sales and, and marketing misalignment. Um, that's 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 very clear. And uh, John touched upon it in his earlier remarks, but um, one of uh, one of the most intriguing aspects of the survey is how a pandemic 
would change that dynamic. And, and that's something I think we're, we're, we're keenly interested in exploring because that has huge ramifications about, about how marketing works in the future, about sales works in the future. Um, so who would have thought that a pandemic might have a, a material influence in how marketing and sales work together? Um, and that's what a lot of this is about, is how do you break down those, those silos, break down the wall, and what does this really mean for the future? John, is that your, um, perhaps you can elaborate that on a, a little bit. Yeah, I like the point you make on how do you do it. Um, certainly, you don't want to call up a, a disaster like a pandemic to force the issue. I'm not sure I have the answers there, but but what, what was clear to me in the survey was that sales, as it adjusted to a new way of going to market, was looking for help. And they naturally turned to an organization that that prior might have been viewed as a nice to have, the marketing organization. And part of the reason sales needs help or wants help at this time is that sales is always a very um, in the moment kind of capability, a very agile capability, but it didn't have enough supply of the things it needed to be agile um, in the digital environment. It didn't have the assets, it didn't have the insights. And it was nice to see that it looked to marketing that it long been harping on data and assets and interaction and engagement um, as a source. So it's nice to see in companies that there is that, at least the awareness that marketing is a provider of those kinds of things. I do think that um, that that still is a little bit more tactical than it might be. And it's very hard for marketing to meet tactical requirements, just as before the pandemic, it's hard to be asked, can you build something for me tomorrow? So this need for tactical um, assets, interaction drivers uh, is a very real one. And both marketing and sales need to figure out together how to meet that in a more operationalized way. I don't think we heard a lot of that in the calls um, about how we're gonna solve this need that sales had, has. We just saw that sales has the need and views marketing as a potential source of the solution. Yeah, John, if you, if you think of it too, um, you can just imagine the abrupt change in um, in behavior that salespeople, field sales, uh, went overnight from generating leads at uh, trade shows and visiting prospects and, you know, pitching in a, in a conference room, bringing in donuts, taking them out for drinks. And, uh, you know, for some companies, that is a primary way that salespeople develop leads and expand existing customers. Now, all of a sudden, overnight, that's ripped apart. And they are then sitting at their desk wondering, you know, what do I do? And that, that, that's kind of, I'm trying to paint a picture of how this, this, this vacuum, this um, inability to, uh, you know, to, to behave in the way that created results before, you know, sales, you know, they naturally started looking around and then saw, saw the marketing department over here, digitally enabled, um, nurturing prospects, bringing them down the funnel, uh, you know, creating, uh, you know, marketing qualified leads, um, sales qualified leads, uh, and they're thinking, okay, this is interesting. 
I, I need to adapt. I need to, I need to adopt some of these digital, um, I need to become digitally enabled myself. And uh, I think that just to kind of imagine how this would happen, it becomes pretty clear when you understand that everything is now virtual. There's no more events. There's no more in-person sales calls, no pitches. And, uh, and that is, you know, fundamentally changed things during the pandemic. And as we're going to speak about later, what does this really mean for the future? Yeah, so I you, think. Go ahead, John. Sorry. Well, I, I just think that I'm not sure that marketing has the answers, but the beginning of this, but marketing can develop the answers. At the beginning of this, the positive thing is that sales is looking for help. And so I think that creates an opportunity for marketing to think much more deeply about how do I enable sales in an operationalized way. So it's not just about building marketing assets. It's really going to be about sitting with sales and figuring out what is the digital equivalent as close as you can get or the digital improvement on face-to-face -face sales interaction. And that's a pretty deep activity. And I think the companies that really work on it, so content providers or messaging providers and messaging deliverers working together is the type of enablement we need to move to. I do believe that a lot of marketers are in the marketing department. There are people who can think deeply and do very well at delivering messaging. But my point is that the messaging that sales really needs now is a little bit different. It's deeper, especially field sales, than messaging we typically associate with high velocity cadences. So I'm saying sales is coming, looking for help, but marketing needs to be ready to really dig in and solve this problem together with sales. And to capitalize on the opportunity to really drive that sales and marketing alignment. So Yeah, it's a great opportunity for marketing, so let's not squander it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, for so many years, marketing has been dependent on sales to feedback on the quality of their, let's say, the you know, marketing-generated leads. Uh, and to prove their their uh, to their prove their efforts, if you will. And now it seems like the pendulum is swinging the other way, where sales is really dependent on marketing to help them understand and drive those insights at these accounts that they that they're trying to sell at. Yeah, imagine they're so. There's this yeah, so, I mean, Sorry. we can be really specific. So, so, so many salespeople are so great at creating conversations sort of out of thin air when they encounter somebody at a trade show. They're very relaxed person to person, but when all you have is a phone or email, if you just imagine how difficult it is to understand text interactions between teenagers in your household, it's the same kind of problem that's being created. So there's really no face-to-face, -face, there's no body language, and yet there's multiple interactions. So becoming comfortable and effective uh, is really going to be a new art in, in that everybody is going to have to take advantage of in selling. Fred, did you have another comment? Uh, I was just underscoring the point that um, this is probably a first for marketing. Um, just imagining marketers who um, you know, typically faced a pretty powerful organization called sales with their own influence and their own ability to uh, affect company policy. And here comes marketing, um, you know, coming to the table year after year, uh, you know, in some ways, um, you know, pleading for some attention to leads and pleading for buy-in. Um, 
and uh, you know, talking about nurtures, talking about ABM, talking about all the things that marketers do to bring um, prospects down the funnel to the point where their deliverable is a, uh, a sales qualified lead looking for sales to accept it. And then in some instances, sales, uh, you know, will, uh, you know, with, with, with an honest degree of uh, effort, uh, pursue and accept the lead. But in some instances, a, a lot of them just don't put the energy into the leads. And we, Enrico, we've seen that for, for years and years in our business is that the ability of mar a marketing campaign to be successful is highly correlated with the buy-in from sales to follow up on those leads. So imagine marketers surprise when sales is coming back to them with a whole new paradigm and uh, asking for help. And uh, so to me, that, that that's a that, great point, Fred. Sorry, I was, uh, that's a great point, Fred. I was, and often as, as um, working with sales and marketing teams, we do find ourselves a bit of uh, kind of monkey in the middle uh, where sales, uh, well, marketing and sales have a rather dysfunctional relationship and not really working together. And certainly one of the things that I look for, you know, before in working with clients is making sure that this, you know, is, is, is sales, does sales have a seat at the table uh, with marketing? to ensure that that alignment's there. And so let's, let's move to the next observation, which is really around per, perhaps more around tactics and how do you build. Um, so you've got sales that's coming to marketing for support, uh, asking for support. And, uh, and that, bring, that comes up with the term that Fred, you just shared with us around ABM, account-based marketing. Certainly sales is, is doing it from a sales perspective on account-based selling. So it's really the coming, bringing the two together uh, and ABM uh, and ABS for, uh, ha have been around for, for years. Uh, but I feel like, again, there's an opportunity here. So what's happening now and what are, how can marketing capitalize on this opportunity through, through, you know, th through strong ABM programs? And what, you know, what does that look like? John, maybe I'll start with you. So I want to come at that first from um, the perspective of leads, because I think it segues off of what Fred was saying. Ironically, um, you know, leads have always been important. They've been valued to a certain extent, but given the pandemic changes in sort of demand activity in the marketplace, um, noise in the marketplace, it's very clear that that something that we call that we might call a lead is more is deemed more valuable now than it was. So if it's deemed more valuable, that suggests to me that you're going to have to handle it with a little bit more care. And so that's the first piece here that the leads that marketing or that sales is getting itself need to be evaluated and handled with more care. Now let's connect this into, um, into ABM. So one of the things you were talking about, Enrico, is what there was ABM and there was ABS. That confuses me a little bit because it sounds like they're two different things. Uh, one of the problems with ABM is that the letter M, um, it sounds like an idea coming from marketing. Um, and that kind of exacerbated uh, silos that existed because why why would a marketer go over to the sales department and say I've got this great new thing it's really going to help you it's marketing you know but now it's called account based so that was always a problem 
that we saw with the term uh, ABM, despite its popularity among the marketing community. Um, I think one of the things we saw in the survey that's really important is that the pandemic has helped focus everybody around what's essential to any company's uh, future, and that is revenue. And so sales has to hit revenue. Marketing sometimes didn't have to have that much involved, involvement in it, but now everything is focused on how do we preserve revenue and how do we potentially grow revenue. And so that's a natural kind of confluence that brings marketing and sales together around accounts and the notion of revenue. So I would call that full circle ABM, where it's not just account-based marketing, but it is account-based everything on the, the single most important aspect, which is revenue. And that came across loud and clear, uh, I think, in, in our survey responses. So accounts clearly matter. They have always mattered to sales. Um, and they are the focal point of most of the respondents we talked to. There were two different groups. One group talked about the importance of existing customers. Certainly, that's a strong part of everything we're seeing during the pandemic. But there are those companies that have to acquire more customers. And so though that acquisition is going to be account-based. Account -based. Um, and then it is that the revenue matters. And so how are we going to get to revenue? Let me try to connect it back to leads. So leads are one type of, of behavioral input into the availability of revenue. But leads, historically, as we've seen, can be squandered. We also know that in B2B, the decision-making group is not an individual. It's not a lead that makes a decision. Rather, it's a group of people with different functions and roles in the decision who come together. Now, it's very rare that you see leads from many people tied together. In fact, we pass leads individually. And somehow we hoped that this buying group, let's say more members had become engaged, engaged, would be reassembled for the salesperson to treat correctly in the opportunity phase. But that has not happened yet. So one of the places um, where it's really important to take a look at the behavioral data that we call intent data is in surface, surfacing this buying group. So here's the connection. We have to move beyond leads, the first step is treating them as precious things, to buying groups, and we have to enable salespeople to identify buying groups and track and develop the connections between those people who are responsible for a decision at the client. And that can only happen if we combine the first party data that we see as leads with the second party data that we see as purchase and tenant information into a group of people that we then help sales pursue. And the key word there is help. What I really like about what you're saying, what you're saying John, is you're actually using those insights, right? Those, those insights, uh, the, the intent, um, the behavioral data, if you will. You're using that as a means to have a much more relevant and uh, timely conversation, which is exactly what sales is looking for. Is that is Yeah, that with more than one person. 
So, so it's not just, right? The lead is not the unit of demand here. It's the buying group. And if a lead is dispositioned negatively, you lose, you, historically, you lost the whole buying group. So now marketing and sales have to sit together with probably sales ops and say, geez, we can't waste these individual leads. And even more importantly, we can't waste the connections. We have to discover the connections between these leads at a single account. And so that's a new thing that folks have to be able to do. And it's not going to happen unless marketing, sales, and sales ops get together and continue this discussion about what is the unit of measurement or what is the unit of pursuit that we're trying to manage here um, is brought to life. And just before I go to Fred, that begs the question of, are the current CRM platforms configured correctly? Because what you're saying, which I 100% agree with, is taking that account view, you know, from an ABM perspective. And then, as I referred to uh, previously, account-based selling is to be able to look at the account holistically, understand the buying unit uh, at the account, across the account, uh, who are all the individuals, all the touch points. Uh, and sadly, today, most CRMs are not set up that way. So it's very hard from a, uh, f f to engage from a sales engagement perspective actually to get that full, uh, that full picture that you're describing. Fred. Yeah, I'd say that. Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say that I would say that the CRM, CRMs have it in there, just nobody uses it. And so I'd, I'd put it back to you guys and say, since when you guys multi-thread in an account, um, are you enabled by your client CRM or do you enable yourselves to do that? because I'm always interested in the companies that are taking advantage of what's in, in Salesforce, for example, the opportunity contact record plus a single um, custom field helps you do this. It's just nobody uses it. Right. And certainly in our systems, that's exactly how we configure the, the user interface, if you will, the UI that we have shows the account centric view. So it has all the, the, the buying unit. Uh, and 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 feeds in those insights, so you can you can actually have that. Um, but most of our clients' CRMs, I must admit, are not they don't use that functionality that you've just described. Fred, we've been talking about ABM. <laughs> yeah, yes, we have. Uh, well, my my take on on it is um, very similar to John's, but I I typically look at things a little bit little bit different. I, I think of it in terms of what is the um, what's what's the what's what's behind what's driving the behavior what's driving the motivations and you know as John was speaking I started thinking about um, you know your posters behind you Enrico talk about think of a number now the salespeople and, and this is what we heard the salespeople they, they don't have to think they know what the number is and that is the quota and the quotas during the pandemic largely didn't change and uh, so they are then you know staring at a situation where they have the same goals they have just had a number of uh, arrows taken out of their quiver. They've got, um, you know, they've got uh, uh, an organization over here called marketing, which is there to help and support. And uh, so what does that really mean for them? Well, it means that if you think of it specifically, I think that the, the salespeople typically uh, do ABM in real time, right? In situ. So they, they, they're sitting down with their counterpart at a prospect or customer, and they're extracting the kind of ABM intelligence that is, is, 
that they find far more comfortable to do live because they have the relationship. They can talk about who else is involved in the, uh, you know, in the evaluation. Um, you know, tell me about the politics. Uh, you know, is, is IT involved? Um, who else do I need to speak with? You know, tell me a little bit more about the presentation, the people in the room and what their motivations are and so forth. And uh, so it's a different slice of ABM that I think that salespeople go through. And those conversations are much harder to do in marketing when you don't have the person in front of you and you have the relationship. So, um, so sales is looking at marketing as a proxy to how do I develop that same kind of information so that I can go, uh, I can be far better armed when I go into that, into that virtual sales pitch. Now, what that means for marketing um, is of course, happy to help, happy to, happy to help digitally enable in the, in the ABM context, but their motivations are slightly different. We've seen through the survey work that a lot of the marketing activities, um, which do not involve uh, working existing accounts, which don't involve ABM, are falling by the wayside, meaning that those kind of quote unquote nice to haves in terms of um, perhaps it is some real time um, contactless development or you know, how do you set up a nurture program newsletter for respondents or you know, dot, dot, dot. Instead, they're being laser focused on existing customers because those, let's face it, are low-hanging fruit for a lot, for a lot of for a lot of our for a lot of accounts, and you know how do we then push revenue using ABM techniques and technology? And so you have these you have the salespeople unable to do real-time account-based selling or account-based marketing. You have marketing which has been doing it, but they haven't been doing it full-time or they haven't emphasized it necessarily. Then you have these two groups that are coming together with the same interest. And that's helping to put those two together. And I think that that is helping to underscore the thesis of, of this podcast, which is a sales and marketing alignment. So I kind of think of it in terms of, um, you know, what are the external factors that are driving, driving the behaviors? And I think a lot, it all has to do, Enrico, about what you're talking about, which is revenue. And the revenue goals haven't changed. So how do they make it happen? But how do they make it happen together? Because they both need each other at this point. Those are awesome insights, John and Fred, on, on, on ABM and, and how to really kind of provide a laser focus on driving revenue for the sales teams. Now, let's talk about how technology supports that uh, and how the p- pandemic maybe has accelerated sales and marketing tech, uh, technology transformation, adoption. Um, and, you know, what's really going to be critical for sales and marketing teams to um, to use and leverage uh, to drive those types of engagement programs. John, could we start with you? Sure, I I think there are really two pieces um, of why technology is important. And one is at the user level and the other is at the management level. Let me take the second one first. Um, What we saw very clearly in the research was that managers are clamoring for insight into what's going on in their organization. And they've realized, especially in the companies where there was kind of a mix of adoption of a core technology like CRM, um, that without users actually being in the system, being required to be in the system, management had very little visibility into what was going on in their organization. So that's a big aha. It's sort of a digital transformation aha that if you have a system that is capable of providing insight for management to make decisions on, 
the system has to be used. And so we saw a lot of companies saying, oh, well, now management is making sure that everybody uses the systems that they've been, in quotes, enabled with. But the other piece and why there's often a lot of resistance to systems adoption is that the system was not designed for the user, right? It was not, you know, and that in the early days, especially of CRM, it was not particularly helpful. Now, there are a whole lot of systems available that are really helpful to salespeople. And so it's incumbent on management to understand what is keeping sellers from selling, right? What is creating overhead? And then what systems are available or are present in the organization that actually reduce overhead for the sellers and assist them in selling? And so the digital transformation of the sales stack is something we're seeing in spades, not just in this research, but all across our business. It's interesting you use the term overhead. I, I like to use the term friction, removing, sales, removing friction from the sales process. And I 100% agree with you that technology today um, in the adoption of tech, both in particular on the sales front, getting the right data in is going to provide that level of, of uh, of transformation. And it's, it's an imperative that teams that are kind of the high users in particular um, are, are, are kind of in the system, have certain SLAs on how to update the system uh, and, you know, what fields get, um, get filled out at what frequency uh, in order to build out that, you know, ultimately to build out the buying could be contacts, could be uh, interviews. Uh, and so, really building out the, the, the full mosaic, if you will, at the account level that could then trigger and, and support marketing campaigns. So let me, let me ask Fred, um, from your perspective, you know, how have you seen, uh, you know, what's your view of how the pandemic has, has accelerated these types of changes on the technology, on the technology side? Sure. Um, in the, in the early part of the pandemic, um, which was sort of that deer in headlights phase. Um, you know, everything was essentially put on hold while people were scrambling to understand uh, what's going to happen next week, not necessarily what's going to happen next month. Um, and we, we saw this in the survey that um, when we implemented the survey, it was uh, kind of midway through the summer, early midsummer. And at that point, people had started to get their footing that yes, customers are still, they're still buying. Um, we still have our quotas. It's time to, it's time to start thinking about the future. And so, a lot of those technology projects, which had otherwise been halted in the early stages of the pandemic, started to kick in again. And um, so, I've, we mentioned earlier that a key a key observation was that those companies that had already been on the digital transformation path um, were seeing uh, far, far greater success in being able to respond to the pandemic. And those that had not were scrambling to do so. And uh, you know, one of the conclusions, not to steal the thunder from um, the last part of this, is those companies that had started it already, the gap between um, those that had started and those that hadn't is going to probably influence the competitive advantage coming out of the pandemic. It's that important. Um, but when I think of technology, I think of it, it's hard to think of technology without thinking of people process 
and technology and underscoring all of that or the common denominator is data. And um, if you've got the technology in place, it's only as good as your people and your technology. And naturally, um, you know, good data in, good data out, bad data in, bad data out. So, um, you know, I view that technology is something that is, um, is now being viewed uh, not as a nice to have, a shiny object, you know, let me be, you know, I'm gonna allow myself to be sold a, a you know, automation platform, um, but now, wait a minute, this really is, this is a critical component to the buyer journey in a world where everything's virtual. So without looking at technology, you know, that's gonna be your weakest link without looking at process or people again. So I think technology is rising in importance um, as it relates to that three-part or four-part, really, if you include data, um, four-part stool that represents um, how coming out of the pandemic are you going to be successful. And um, what's interesting, though, is to think about it. We talked about CRM. You've got a, a difference, I think, between ABM for current customers and ABM versus prospects. And uh, I'm personally very interested, not necessarily in how the customers are going to be pursued, but how prospects are going to be pursued. And um, data is going to be a critical component of that, um, you know, which is why, why we've really valued our partnership with, with, with John and TechTarget, because uh, they're the experts in data. And we haven't really talked about data very much. I know we're about to. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to answer that question, Rico, without acknowledging the role of data and process and people. Um, so I, 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 I would probably answer in short by saying technology represents something that has increased in value during the pandemic because marketers are starting to acknowledge the fact that without technology, you can't truly um, stitch together the buyer journey. There's no way you're going to have a 360 degree of the customer, not to mention maybe a 180 degree view, view of the prospect. You just can't do it. And just to add to that, Fred, a lot of the kind of the, the quick pivots we helped our clients uh, address back in March, April this year was, was, it, was, the, was the shift from kind of in-person events to online events. So talk about speeding up the digital transformation, uh, you know, going from zero to 60 in literally a matter of days where uh, clients were holding, you know, summits and forums, uh, user groups, uh, in the physical world, they had to all of a sudden transfer all of that and make it digital. Well, what's really, so, sorry, what's really interesting about that, Enrico, because that's a really good point, the whole concept of virtual events. You know, we're seeing a big influx of inquiries around event follow-up, um, event recruitment, obviously virtual. And in the past, event follow-up from our clients has been um, relatively one-dimensional follow up on this contact to see if there's an opportunity. You know, very simple, you know, that's been going on since the, the dawn of events, right? But now we're looking at, wait a minute, every lead is important. Every lead represents an account. Every account needs to be marketed to and sold to. And so how then are companies going to change the way they, um, they process attendees at events? knowing what we know now, knowing that everything is shifting a bit towards account-based marketing and selling. And, uh, and that to me is really interesting. And, and we haven't really seen that played out, but my guess is um, the concept of an event attendee is going to take on a whole different, whole different meaning, you know, a few months from now. 
and not just the attendees, but also the registrants. Any opportunity to engage, I think, with, with relevant uh, contacts to your point leads at an account to yeah, and build out the mosaic. Exactly. And in the past, a lot of those leads went straight to salespeople because, um, you know, let's face it, somebody that event, attends an event, you're going to have a higher MQL rate coming out of that uh, from, as a marketer. Um, so high, in fact, that oftentimes it kicks straight over to sales, especially if it's an account that's on their list. Um, but how about that gets kicked over to sales with some account-based marketing against it? So they go in not just calling up a contact that was at an event to follow up to see what's going on, but you call into that contact um, armed with rich, almost three-dimensional information about what that account is doing and how, what impact is that going to have on conversion rates as opposed to just basically an account, a contact-based follow-up. John, this sounds like a perfect tee up to you and, and, uh, and the work that you're doing because it is about driving insights, providing those insights and putting those insights in front, of, uh, in front of sales at the account level. So maybe you can share with us, you know, what's, what is the role of data uh, in, in, in all of this? Well, so let me try to segue off of this event conversation because I, I felt, I kind of felt like I wanted to jump in and say, <laughs> When you start doing more virtual events, you have the potential to have, um, assuming you can come up with good topics, um, good content, to have far more attendees. So that creates a kind of wealth of leads. Um, but let's take a step back from that and let's ask the question of who do we want at our events anyway? So too many times I think uh, in the past, we've done too little thinking about who we want at the events. It's amazing to me the number of companies that come to us to try to get uh, targeting support for events and have very have done very little thinking about what they're trying to accomplish with their events. The use of events for awareness has long been known to be a really expensive way to go. The use of events for acceleration on the other hand, is really where you get a lot of ROI. And so how do you get to having the people at the events who you can really accelerate, the people you most want at the events? And you do that by trying to attract the people who you can see in the data have a need, right? So you want the people who are involved in opportunity now, but you also want people who are involved in a buyer's journey they just haven't become an opportunity yet. And that's a key use case for purchase intent data. So in, invite the people to your event. Now you can do it na nationally because you don't have the physical presence uh, who look like they are trying to solve a business problem. Let me try to segue that to the higher idea of, of what is the role for data in all of this. I take it back to the management data versus um, end user data. So management has this need to understand things that are going on across say groups of accounts or account teams. Um, but the, the end user has a need for data in a way that allows him or her to use it. And this is about how do you get the data from whatever its source is into the hands of the end user in a way that's not overwhelming. So this creates sort of a 
a requirement of all of us in the tech solution space to really think hard about now that we're in digital only, how much easier do we have to make it to get the salespeople enabled? You know, before the pandemic, the basic computer that everybody was using uh, in field sales was their own brain. They were running massively complex ideas, conversation threads, user group patterns. Uh, and they were containing this in their own brain. And they would reinforce what they knew about an account by meeting with multiple people in an account during a visit, an on-site visit. That ability to capture that insight and hold it in their brain no longer exists because they don't have the physical interaction available. So how are you going to enable them now in a way that is similar to how they've been enabling themselves historically? Well, you're gonna to have to get much better at how you think about what is the screen they use? How do they use it? How do you prep them for calls or how do they prep for calls? How do you reduce the overhead of doing account research depending on how many um, accounts they have to cover and so on. And so that's not just about the data itself, but about how the data actually flows into your stack and is presented to the user. And just on that point, John, it makes me think of some of the, some of the, the ways we've evolved, even just the way we, we provide uh, you know, qualified leads back to sales. You know, it used to be in the old day, here's an appointment, here's the time of your appointment, you know, here's the person you're speaking to, and maybe a sentence around or a sentence or two as to um, some details around that appointment. Today, it's, it's, it's much richer, right? So what we're seeing uh, going to sales is exactly that. It's, it's, a, it's an account profile with, you know, rich intelligence, not, you know, at, at the account level, you know, what's happening at the account level, maybe it's mergers and acquisitions, maybe it's uh, transformation initiatives, maybe they're moving into new markets. Um, and then what's, what's the buying unit, right? And who are all the touch points within that account? And what's the really the, the compelling event? Uh, and it's understanding it at the account level that's really driving relevant conversations uh, that sales can have with, with, you know, with their buyers. Uh, and, and, and it's almost turning in more, much more into a customer service type interaction when you all of a sudden have that level of information those level of insights uh it's of course it's a well-timed call or email that's going out but ultimately what that converts to is a conversation that's uh that's that seems you know where you remove the friction right where there's less overhead uh where the the recipient of that call is um is grateful to a certain extent because it's 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 really seen more as a customer service call yeah, I think I, I have to echo that, that in a buyer's journey, especially in a complex B2B decision, uh, all buyers, all buying groups uh, have a hard time and they need and want help. And so if sales can think of themselves or when sales thinks of themselves as serving the needs of the buying group in the buyer's journey, all signs point to they have much greater success. Now, all of us around sales need to enable that. And so this is again about 
what should be happening through sales and marketing alignment, understanding what the buyer is trying to do, what problems they're having, and then enabling sales as the point of contact um, to help the buyers do that is perfect role for marketing. So before I go to the last question here, uh, Fred, is there anything else you wanted to add on we're on, on the data side or? Um, yeah, I was thinking as, as I was listening to the discussion that, you know, data has uh, many different, many different roles in the sales process. You know, the first role I think, which is a bit self-evident is how do you open up a dialogue? And um, everybody knows about the, the technique, show me, you know me, let me um, demonstrate to you a prospect that I know something about you or your company, and they're going to want to engage. So you open up the conversation. Then you have the role of how much do you know about the, the organization? Do you know about their platforms, their pains, their processes, where the opportunities are? And data has a, has a role there. And then you've got other subsidiary roles in terms of knowing who the players are. And it's the ability to triangulate all those different roles of data, which, um, which brings you to a point where you've really maximized your propensity to sell into that account. And so I think of data very much as, as serving multiple roles in the buyer journey. And um, so that's the only thing I would add to it is, uh, you know, and you don't have one component of, the, of, of that, that role and you've got a weak link. And uh, so that's why to me data is so important because it's part of the top, it's part of the bottom of the buyer journey and naturally it probably uh, continues on post-sale. Well, we've, we've covered quite a bit of topics here. Uh, certainly some, some, some of the main observations from the, from the survey were that, uh, you know, a shift in, in sales and marketing alignment, i.e. this, this, if you will, this dependence of, of sales now uh, from uh, on, on marketing. Uh, and then the, 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 the sharp focus of marketing and their budgets around account ABM and helping drive revenue, having kind of meaningful um, uh, engagements uh, with specific set of, of accounts to drive conversions in the funnel. Uh, and then we talked about acceleration of, of, of technology adoption, both on the sales and marketing side. And finally, the role of data across all of this to really enable it and, uh, and build out not just the accounts, uh, but segments within those accounts and, and, and how you might uh, accelerate conversions uh, of the, again, through the funnel of, of those particular segments. So my, my last question is really around, you know, what happens when we go back, you know, if we go back to normal or the new normal as, as, as people are talking about, you know, where does this leave us? Where do you guys think, uh, you know, what is sales going to say, okay, no longer, I'm no longer dependent on you now marketing. I can go back to having, you know, my, my face-to-face uh, visits with my clients. You know, where do you, we see this going? John, maybe I'll start with you. I like the dependence word. And I think that there's a lot there, you know, before, before the pandemic, despite the fact that we in B2B might've ignored it, there was already momentum uh, on the side of buyers in the consumer space towards preferring for many transactions, a digital environment. We saw a lot of pressure on, on companies like banks who had bad websites 
not being preferred. Um, so there was this natural transformation on the buyer side towards a digital preference because I think probably the interfaces had gotten to a point where the interaction was good digitally and certainly you didn't have to spend the time in, unless you wanted to, to go out to a retail provider. So you had this choice in your consumer life and we're all consumers. Now in the pandemic, even in our business life, uh, the choice to interact physically has been removed from us. And those sellers who provide a great experience digitally or at a minimum seem to be trying to are going to be sellers that are more successful. We're going to prefer them. Uh, they're not going to interrupt us when they don't have something important to talk to us about. When we have a need, they're going to be very responsive and easy to reach and so on and so forth. So the backdrop here, I think, is that buyer behavior is more and more digital. And so that's a reality. Now, the question is, are those, are all the, among all the companies that have learned or are learning to be more digital, how many are going to realize that they need to keep a lot of that in place because certain buyers, if not all buyers, will continue to prefer it? I do think we're going to see a lot of backsliding, and I think it's because the power centers in organizations are, are so commonly associated with sales and so commonly associated with face-to-face -face selling. It's something people grew up doing, they know how to do it, and they prefer to do it. But I think there's going to be this group right at the margin of customers who will reject face-to-face -face selling. And I think it's a larger group than existed before the pandemic. So I think companies would be wise to consider keeping some of their advances in place and striving to advance further to serve the buying preferences of those customers, especially you know the younger generation who didn't grow up appreciating face-to-face -face sales. All right, before I drill into some of that, I wanna ask Fred maybe if he's got some, some observations around uh, what might happen once we go back to the back to the new normal. Well, unfortunately, Enrico, I left my crystal ball in the car. Um, maybe <laughs> I've got a snow globe here. I can, uh, no. So I, I think that it's, it's, it's really hard to say, um, but I do think there's some factors that are going to work, uh, that are going to determine the, that answer. For example, how long is the, the, the pandemic going to last? So if tomorrow the pandemic were lifted magically, um, it's going to be a lot easier for salespeople to, you know, kind of fall back into their modus operandi of, you know, physical relationship building and selling that nature. Um, the other factor I think has to do with those companies that actually see tangible success in the, the virtual um, sales and marketing role um, and digital transformation. So what I mean by that is if you, if a company um, eyes wide open, embraces digital, enables a sales team digitally, and they're seeing success in that regard, then I think that kind of company is going to be far more pro um, probable uh, 
a candidate to continue the virtual in the future. Um, and, you know, if I could prescribe what a company should do, it would be go all in and embrace virtual, embrace digital enablement, accelerate your digital transformation, um, look very closely at your data. And um, even if you're not seeing those returns today, and I think to a large degree, those returns depend upon your, your industry focus, frankly. Um, but I don't think that that it's as simple as that. And to John's point, I think that the buying community is going to also be another variable is what are buyers forcing sellers to, how, how, how do buyers dictate how, they, how they're sold to in the future? And I think that that is a third or fourth component to being able to answer it. So I think there's a lot of variables which make it difficult to, you know, again, look at that crystal ball, but, but I do think that those are, at least we frame the argument and we know what's gonna to contribute towards what the world looks like a year from now. So embrace, embrace digital transformation, embrace virtual selling, virtual marketing. To me, that begs the question of how do you build rapport and what's the role of relationship building, which is huge in B2B, right? In B2B selling. Well, that, a lot of that, again, is going to be determined by the buyer. You know, how does the buyer, what does the buyer feel most comfortable with? How do they like to be engaged? And it may be a different kind of relationship. It may not be that person to person, you know, um, you know, let me give you tips on your golf swing. It may be something more around the lines of finding a different ways to make connections with your buyers. Um, it may be around honing your skills and articulating what customer success means from the point of view of the vendor. And that may be a new way to um, increase the value quotient of the relationship. But I, but I, you know, I, I think it's, it's really up to both the buyer and the seller to understand what is that equilibrium going to look like in the future. John, what do you think about that, that issue, if you will, if, that I brought up around building rapport, relationship building in a virtual world? And, and how does that dynamic, how does it, because how does the salesperson address that moving forward? See, I think it, I think it's essential that relationships get built. I don't believe that removing human beings completely um, is an optimal way to do it. Otherwise, everything could become um, totally e-commerce, no people involved. I mean, it could become that way, but here's the issue and why I think human beings require relationships. Because there's so many unknowns in complex um, business buying. Now, there's so many unknowns. People have a great degree of fear about what could go wrong or what's going to happen when something goes wrong because we can't solve for all eventualities. And the point of the relationship is to try to get a feeling for what is going to happen when things aren't so rosy. And how are you on the other side of the telephone going to help me get out of this problem that we got each other into? So it is the trust in another human being to be on the team in solving the problem that has arisen that we didn't anticipate. And it could be that playing golf with somebody gets you to that. But my dad, big golf player, had this tremendous point uh, 
that didn't stimulate me to play golf, but I think it's an important one. He said with customers, playing golf was critical because it helped him as a seller understand what the customer was really like. Because their behavior on the golf course, how they moved their ball when nobody was watching, uh, how they responded to stress, help him, helped him understand what the relationship, the sales and buying relationship was going to be like going forward. So I'm saying you can't replace that where you're studying your customer's behavior and that's why you want to do face-to-face. -face. But what you can try to replace um, is what the customer needs from you as a seller in terms of trust that you will be there, that you will support them when things arise that were not anticipated. Because these decisions and these implementations are so complicated, inevitably something doesn't go well. And that's about how you intend as a seller, both pre-sales and post-sale, um, to fulfill the promises you make, I think. Um, so I think in selling now pre-sales, Sellers have to be, and marketers as well, have to be even more aware of only making promises that they intend or that they are able to fulfill. Because if they don't create trust in every interaction, or they don't work to create trust in, in every interaction, they won't have the fallback of using a golf game to smooth things out. It will simply be the fact that you said this, but you delivered that, and there's a clear disconnect. So what I what I really wanted to get at was what are you losing when you um, no longer have the ability to interact physically in the creation of relationships? And I think the reason relationships are so important in B2B is that so much can go wrong um, that you can't plan for in a complicated sales process or implementation. And so the challenge when we lack the ability to develop relationships and maintain them face-to-face -face, is how do you create the trust on both sides of the table um, that is so necessary to get a team through the selling and then the implementation um, so that anything that, that is bad that happens can be overcome. So I really think that sellers are going to have to be super careful in the pre-sales um, stage to make promises that they're sure that they can fulfill because they're much more likely to be held to promises when they're only happening over the phone and then in writing than when they might be discussed in a more casual environment. And then it is post-sales um, where in the fulfillment of those promises, sales will probably want to stay involved to make sure that the entire team that needs to be aligned from the very start is enabled and intent on fulfilling those promises that are always made in a sales interaction. John, this resonates with me so much just because I've seen it, you know, over the years in B2B sales, a lot of our clients are, um, you know, came from the traditional kind of perpetual license sales where they could do, you know, seven figure, eight figure deals uh, up front. Um, and then the client was kind of stuck, you know, stuck with that technology. Uh, 
Whereas in, in a SaaS world, you, you know, you've got to you basically have to resell that, you know, that's that promise every year or every second year. Uh, and so you can't really run away from it. So it's so important to get that right. And almost to the point of where you're under promising and over delivering. Uh, and it's, you know, sadly in, 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 in technology, often the conversation goes, well, if you buy this great platform of ours, you know, we're, it's going to transform you. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, as you know, Fred mentioned earlier, it's not just about technology, right? And as we've been talking about, it's people, it's processes, data. There's so many elements that have to come together to make that uh, that implementation successful. Uh, and so, being being honest about it and being upfront about it uh, and building that trust in through not just the sales process but through the implementation and through customer success is so critical. Uh, and I see a lot of, I still to this day, see a lot of companies getting that wrong. Well, thank you, John and Fred, for an interesting and inspiring discussion. I think we can all agree that while we're living through extremely challenging times, our industry is doing its best to adapt and emerge in a stronger place. For anyone interested in another episode or reading the full report, please visit marketone.com forward slash funnelocity. Thanks for attending.